If your house has an older gas furnace, you're familiar with the pilot light. It's a standing flame that acts as a trigger for the bigger burner. Well, the pilot light stays perpetually lit. It's what ignites the furnace when you want to crank up the heat in the house. You can't fire up the furnace without the pilot. And the Jewish hierarchy knew that they couldn't kill Jesus without the pilot. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, was the trigger that had to be squeezed for Jesus to be crucified. In 19 AD, the Romans stripped the Jews of their right to exercise capital punishment. A death sentence could only be handed down by Rome and its agents. Thus, Pilate was the pilot light. Pontius Pilate was one of the most infamous villains in history. He ruled Judea for a decade, from 26 to 36 AD. He was the governor of Judea. For 1900 years, there was no archaeological proof that Pilate existed. That is until 1961. That's when archaeologists excavating the amphitheater of Caesarea discovered a limestone tablet engraved with his name. Those of you who've been with me to Caesarea have seen the replica that's on display. The original is tucked away safely in the Israeli museum. Most of what we know about Pilate is from the Bible, but legends about him abound. One story says that he ended up overcome with guilt and committed suicide. There's another story. When the Caesar in Rome became ill, he sent word to Pilate hoping to see Jesus. He had heard of Jesus' miracles. Pilate stalled in answering Tiberius since he had already crucified Jesus. A woman named Veronica had followed Jesus to the cross and had wiped his brow with her handkerchief. The cloth held a mysterious representation of the face of Jesus. Veronica went to Rome and presented the cloth to the emperor. He was miraculously healed, but he became furious at Governor Pilate. Thus, he had him executed. You could say Tiberius turned off the pilot. Well, verse 1 begins... In Luke chapter 23, then the whole multitude of them, that is the Jews, arose and led him, Jesus, to Pilate. Pilate was an enigma, really. He hated the Jews and their customs, but he often appeased their leaders to keep the peace. In fact, Pilate tried Jesus three times and acquitted him after each of these queries. And yet he still sentenced Jesus to death in order to placate the Jewish leaders. Pilate was the consummate politician. He cared more for posturing than for principle. He was more about the political political ramifications than he was the spiritual consequences. Our text continues, And they, the Jewish leaders, began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. All three of their accusations violated Roman law. Of course, the first two were total fabrications. Jesus never did pervert the nation. And he did pay his taxes, once paying he and Peter's tax from a coin they found in a fish's mouth. Pilate knew that these first two accusations were bogus. But he probes into the third charge. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. Jesus did claim to be a king, 
but he never voiced his political or military ambition. Jesus was the king of a spiritual, eternal kingdom. He certainly posed no immediate threat to Pilate. And so Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Verse 5. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Again, Pilate plays the politician. He passes the buck. Herod Antipas was the ruler over the region of Galilee. He happened to be in town for the Passover. And so this became a matter for Herod to decide. Verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And understand, Herod had no real desire to follow Jesus. He just viewed him as a sideshow, sort of like a spiritual circus. He wanted to see a miracle. Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. Jesus said nothing. But in doing so, he spoke loudly. His silence fulfilled the Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Well, we're told, and the chief priests and scribes, they stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. God's son. He's being treated like a political football. Herod now punts him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends. Friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Isn't it amazing? Resistance to Jesus creates unlikely alliances. It unified two men who were otherwise rivals, Pilate and Herod. Well, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod either, for I sent him back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. In Pilate's eyes, Jesus had done nothing to deserve death. But here he tries to placate, to pacify the Jews by having Jesus scourged or beaten. This was typical Pilate politics. He ignores the truth and he tries to strike a compromise. We're told in verse 17, For it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. Now apparently, the Roman governors in Judea had started a tradition. Passover was about freedom from bondage. And so to celebrate this freedom, the governor would set a Jewish prisoner free. Pilate was hoping to use this tradition as a loophole. He could release Jesus without calling the Jewish charges what they were, which was bogus. Well, we're told, and they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city 
and for murder. And I'm sure Pilate couldn't believe his ears. From all accounts, Barabbas was a terrorist. He was an enemy of both Rome and Jerusalem. You see, Barabbas' goal was insurrection. Upset the Romans by keeping the city on pins and needles. If innocent people died, then so be it. The Jews hated this outlaw as much as the Romans. Pilate thought, surely they'll never want Barabbas back on their streets. But on this day, none of Pilate's instincts were right. He underestimated the Jews' intense hatred for Jesus. And so we read in verse 20, Pilate therefore... Wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. The Jews responsible for railroading Jesus were the chief priests, they were the rulers. Remember, this wasn't the same crowd that hailed Jesus their Messiah the previous Sunday. Most Jews were still waking up after their Thursday night Passover feast. Jesus' arrest and these phony trials were carried out in the early mornings, the wee mornings of the, of the, of the wee hours of the morning. Well, then Pilate said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. Never underestimate the intensity of of a religious prejudice. Jesus was a threat to the whole religious system that had been construed and constructed by the Jews. And because he was a threat to their system, they wanted him eliminated. It's, all, it's true today. Often Christianity's fiercest opposition comes from the religion, not from the state. But we're told, and the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. Sadly, it wasn't truth and righteousness that prevailed that day. It was the loudest voices. And so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. In Matthew's account, at this point we're told, and I quote, Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Oh, this scourging was the chastisement that Pilate had threatened several times before. It was a savage beating. The Romans actually called it the halfway death. A cat of nine tails with little bits of lead and ivory embedded into the ends of the cords were used to churn the victim's back into hamburger. His internal organs ended up exposed. Often a, row, a rib or a bone would literally fly off the victim's body during the beating. At the conclusion of the ordeal, the body was cut down. When it hit the pavement, it usually landed in a puddle of blood and urine and feces and sweat. Many of the victims died during the scourging and never even made it to the cross. Those who were unfortunate enough to survive this scourging were made to then carry their own cross to the place of execution. And of course, this was the case with Jesus. Verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Here was a man recruited from the crowd. 
Under Roman law, a soldier had the legal right to recruit a civilian to carry his armor. This inconvenienced the bystander. I mean, this was a burden for this particular man. You know, we're told that the, he was supposed to carry the Roman soldier's baggage for at least a Roman mile, one millennium, which was a little shorter than our 5,280 feet. This particular bystander was a man named Simon from Cyrene in North Africa. Here's a man that may have had black skin. He had made the Passover pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Perhaps Simon was on his way to the temple that morning when suddenly he stumbled across this awful procession. He stopped on the curb to observe the entourage when all of a sudden the point of a Roman spear pressed him in the back, called him into duty. Ironically, Simon had journeyed to Jerusalem to draw closer to God. Who could have imagined that he would draw this close to carry the Savior's own cross? There is evidence that suggests that Simon eventually became a believer, that this event had a profound effect on him. In Mark's gospel, which was directed to the Romans, Simon of Cyrene is further identified as the father of Rufus and Alexander. Apparently, these were men known to the church at Rome. When Paul writes to the Romans later, in Romans 16, verse 13, he greets Rufus and his mother as members of the church. It's likely that this was the same Rufus, the son of Simon, who was now a Christian. Hey, put all the pieces together, and we can assume that Simon was converted from this experience. He went home with a faith in Jesus. He led his family to Christ, and then even later, relocated to the city of Rome. It's interesting that there was another Simon who just hours earlier had boasted, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But now when this Simon is needed, he's nowhere to be found. This Simon of Cyrene now fills in. Verse 27, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wounds that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Now these were not the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee. These were girls from Jerusalem. These were the daughters of Jerusalem. They felt it was their duty to weep and to wail, to stage a display of grief whenever the Romans might crucify a Jew. Jesus sensed that their eyes were filled with tears, but that they were crocodile tears. They should have been crying for himself, he says, themselves. They should have been crying for their own countrymen, the Jews. For again, Jesus sees into Jerusalem's future. In 70 A.D., the Romans will crack down on the city with a vengeance. They'll come with brutality, merciless. And Jesus is saying here, if they do this to a man that they know is innocent, what do you think they'll do when you revolt and you engage in a real insurrection? Well, he tells them, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. In Revelation chapter 6, this is what Jews will say during the tumultuous time that we call the Great Tribulation. 
At the end of the age, God will rock this planet with cataclysmic upheaval. And the daughters of Jerusalem will well again. They'll ask for the mountains to fall on them and for the hills to cover them. In the midst of Jesus' crucifixion, it's interesting that he was actually thinking of his second coming. He says, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? As history tramps along, men's hearts grow harder. Jesus points out that in his day, uh, his day was relatively early in history. The world was still fresh and new. These things were done in the green wood. You'd expect a kind of rejection of God at the end of the age when civilizations were dry and combustible and ready to burn in the fires of judgment. But this is being done in a much earlier age. Verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. Three crucifixions were on the Roman docket that day. This was fulfilled in accordance with Isaiah 53 verse 12, where we're told Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. When they had come to a place called Calvary, Calvary is the English derivative of the Greek word cranium, from which we get our word cranium. Calvary was the name given to the outcropping of rock just outside the north wall of Jerusalem. The locals called it Skull Hill. It looked like a person's skull. In building the temple, King Herod had used this upper portion of Mount Moriah as the stone quarry. The result was a rock formation that looked like a human skull. You can still see Skull Hill today. Erosion has diminished the resemblance a bit, but the eyes, the nose, they're still discernible in the rock. Usually crucifixions were carried out by a roadway where as many local citizens as possible could witness the consequences of rebelling against Rome. It was a stern deterrent to the locals. A main thoroughfare from Jerusalem to Damascus ran by Skull Hill. Jesus was crucified beside this road, perhaps at the top of the hill or maybe even at the bottom, closer to the pedestrians passing by. We're told, there they crucified him. In one short sentence, Luke sums up the most torturous form of execution ever devised. They crucified him. Lethal injection, the electric chair, even the firing squad or the guillotine or a hangman's noose were designed to make execution as quick and painless as possible. Crucifixion, on the other hand, was barbaric and inhumane and designed to drag out the torture. Seven-inch iron spikes were driven into his hands and feet. The victim was then hoisted into the air on a beam. His body weight pressed down on the wounds. Every breath caused excruciating pain to ricochet throughout his body. Most victims suffered for days before they finally died. Often the vultures would arrive before death to start nibbling and feeding on the victim's flesh. The dignified Roman, Cicero, he said this, The idea of the cross should never pass through the thoughts, eyes, or ears of Roman citizens. Hey, Roman citizens deserving of capital punishment were beheaded. They weren't crucified, not the citizens. Crucifixion was for non-Romans, for slaves and savages, for people on the outskirts of the empire. 
And also, crucified along with Jesus, we're told, were the criminals. One on the right hand and the other on the left. Reminds me of the old pastor who was in his in the hospital. He was lying on his deathbed. He only had a few days left to live. He kept crying out to the nurse, Please, nurse, call my congressman and my senator so that I can die in peace. The nurse thought it a strange request, but she finally complied. Well, when the two politicians entered into the room, the pastor told one of them to stand on one side of his bed and the other to stand on the other side of his bed. He told the nurse, Now I can die in peace. The nurse just had to ask him, said, Pastor, what does having your congressman and your senator by your side have to do with you dying in peace? The old pastor answered, Nurse, now I can die like my Lord Jesus between two thieves. Well, actually, we know from Romans chapter 6, verse 8, the identity of one of those thieves was actually the apostle Paul's dad. You remember Paul wrote, My old man was crucified with Christ. Just a joke. On the cross, Jesus made seven statements. Here Luke mentions three. Jesus said to the repentant thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. He turned over the care of his mother to the apostle John, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, Behold your mother. That's when the sky went black for three hours, during which Jesus cried out in anguish to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His final three statements come at the end, and they come in a flurry. His first statement was preparation for the last two. When he cried out, I thirst, it caused the soldiers to moisten his lips so he could utter his grand finale. That's when he makes the momentous statement, It is finished. And then with a final, last gasp, he breathes, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But the final statement Jesus makes from the cross is here here in verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And this is truly amazing grace. Jesus shows compassion on the very people who are spitting in his face and pounding the nails into his flesh and screaming at the top of his lungs, crucify him, crucify him. Friends, here is the heart of God. From the Garden of Eden, man has rebelled against his creator. Yet God keeps loving and reaching and wooing and longing for us to return. If these people had known the heart of God, If they could see what had made Jesus tick, it would have never come to this. They would have fallen on their faces with appreciation, with praise, with absolute surrender. Instead, here they're blinded by ignorance. We're told, and then they divided his garments and cast lots. Apparently, Jesus wore an outer single-piece tunic. It was of some value, so rather than tear it into equal shares, The Roman soldiers attending his crucifixion simply gambled it away. Think of the irony. Here is God, and they shoot craps for his coat. This was another fulfillment, though, of prophecy. Psalm 22, verse 18. Well, then the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, 
He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. What a sinister day. All the world's evil has rallied together against God. Angry taunts come from both religious Jews and secular Romans. See, what no one understood and wouldn't until after the resurrection was that God had deliberately chosen the way of weakness. Power is a two-edged sword. It ends suffering from some folks, yet at the expense of others. But love absorbs everyone's pain. What no one realized was that God had deliberately renounced power in order to demonstrate true love. As an old priest put it, the only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being when it is absorbed there like blood in a sponge or a spear into one's heart. It loses its power and it goes no further. Well, Jesus was the ultimate shock absorber. He refused to save himself. Instead, he absorbed the world's evil and extinguished it with his love. Verse 38. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. A wooden plaque listing the prisoner's crime or crimes was usually nailed to the cross above the victim's head. The accusation against Jesus was written in three languages, the three main languages of the first century. Greek, the language of culture. Latin, the language of government. And Hebrew, the language of religion. Everyone could read this sign. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. He joined the jeers of the crowd. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. To Pilate and to this thief, it was obvious that Jesus was a righteous man. But this man goes even further than Pilate. He acts on the truth that he knows. He puts his faith in Jesus. He trusts Jesus with his eternal destiny. For then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This Greek word translated criminal meant one who uses violence to rob openly. Which means this wasn't this man who was being crucified with Jesus. He wasn't going there He wasn't being crucified for credit card thief, a theft. This was an armed robber. This man was guilty of murder and mayhem. On earth, he undoubtedly deserved death, but in eternity, he was given paradise. And why? Well, it had nothing to do with the works of his hands. They were nailed to a piece of wood. Nor did it have anything to do with the places he went to spread God's kindness, for his feet were nailed to that board. It wasn't because he joined any kind of church. He was nailed to a cross. He didn't go to a church. There was only one thing this man could do. 
And that was to have faith. That was to look to Jesus for salvation. This was all he could do. But amazingly, this was all he had to do. And we all come to God the very same way. By grace through faith. I often think of this boy's poor parents. They went to bed that night and every night thereafter thinking that their son was frying on the grill in hell. But you never really know. You never know what happens in a man's heart during his final seconds. There is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. I've heard it put, God included one deathbed conversion in the Bible to give us hope, but only one not to create false hope. You may die an instant death and not be given a final chance. It's certainly not guaranteed. That's why if you don't know Jesus, hey, come to Him tonight. It may be your last opportunity. Well, verse 44 tells us, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, or from noon to 3 p.m., darkness covered the earth. Nature knew that something was wrong. Suddenly, the lights went out. Amazingly, it was midnight at midday. In Egypt, Israel experienced three days of darkness prior to the Passover and their exodus. On Calvary, they would experience three hours of darkness as the Passover lamb was slain and his blood was shed to set us free. Well, then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. There is a book, Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Days of Christ, Hebrew scholar Alfred Edersheim gleans an insight from the Jewish rabbis. He quotes the Talmud. It says that 40 years after the temple was destroyed, that is the very year that Jesus was crucified, I'm sorry, 40 years before the temple was destroyed, which was the very year Jesus was crucified, the temple doors open of their own accord. It's interesting that a Jewish source affirms the gospel accounts. Just as Luke records, the veil in the temple was torn in two. The door was opened. But the Talmud interpreted this breach as a sign of judgment, whereas the Gospels treated it as a sign of grace. Access to God was now available. Through the work of Jesus, the door had opened for us to enter into God's presence. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus here is quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. It was actually a bedtime prayer for Jewish children. It's amazing, despite the searing pain Jesus experienced, he died a peaceful death. He died as a little child, curling up in his father's arms to go to sleep. Peace and composure didn't escape him, even in the throes of death. And then verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. Hey, the Roman centurion was the backbone of the Roman legion. The equivalent, of, equivalent rank of what we would consider to be a sergeant. Here was a man who knew men. Sizing up and training men was the centurion's job. And it didn't take him long to draw a bead on Jesus. Here was a man among men 
Certainly this was a righteous man. Matthew puts more words into his mouth. Truly this was the Son of God. I'm sure that the Sarge said both. And then the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts in return. In other words, the darkened sky, the convulsions of nature, had silenced their mocking, their ridicule, their scoffing. Those who stayed to the end realized that something serious had happened here. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. There were a few who stuck with Jesus to the very end. Among them were the women who embraced Jesus. Among the miracles in Galilee who had followed him through those miracles, now to the horrors of the cross. But where was Peter? Where were the other disciples? Sadly, they were A-W-O-L. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. Joseph had served on the Jewish Sanhedrin, the same body of men who had condemned Jesus to death earlier that morning. Apparently, they did so without Joseph's approval, And here Luke writes, He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Mark 14, verse 64 reports that the Sanhedrin's verdict on the fate of Jesus, it reports that the verdict, on the verdict, it says, they all condemned him to be worthy of death. In other words, the verdict had been unanimous. And since Luke tells us that Joseph had not consented, we assume that he must have been absent that morning. Perhaps he and Nicodemus had deliberately snubbed the day. Maybe they were somewhere else when the vote was taken, had taken place. Up until this point, Jesus, or Joseph of Arimathea was a, a covert Christian. In other words, a secret saint. John 19 verse 38 describes him as a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. It's interesting that the crisis of the cross sent Jesus' disciples, those that had been open about their faith, underground, while it brought the underground disciples out into the open. As these twelve hide for their lives, thinking that they might be next, Joseph of Arimathea realizes it's time for him to come out of the closet. And hey, coming out of the closet has become fashionable in today's world. Every pervert, every weirdo seems to feel the liberty to come out of the closet these days and celebrate their sickness. If you're an undercover Christian, don't you think it's time for you to come out of the closet too? What are you waiting on? Be bold about your faith. Stop hiding your light under a basket. It's time for us to shine. The world will never need what we've got more than it needs it now. Well, this man, Joseph, he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. There's an ancient legend that preserves the dialogue between Pilate and Joseph. When Joseph asked for the body, Pilate said, Do you realize this will be costly? Have you priced tombs lately? I mean, this is going to cost you a brand new tomb. Joseph replied, Ah, not really. Jesus only needs it for the weekend. And indeed, that was true. Verse 53, Then he took the body down 
wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb. The Jews buried their corpses under mounds of spices, and then they wrapped the body tightly in a linen shroud. Finally, they laid the body in the tomb. And Luke describes the tomb for us. That was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Now, often tombs were double and triple occupancy. In fact, the tomb north of Skull Hill in Jerusalem, believed by many to be this very tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, it was actually cut out for four people. It was a new tomb. You could see where the chiseling was never finished. The tomb that housed the body of Jesus had never been occupied. It was empty when the body of Jesus arrived, and it was empty when he departed. Jesus came into the world through a virgin's womb and left through a virgin tomb. Verse 54, that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. Now Jesus died shortly after 3 p.m. The Jewish day ended at sundown. Thus the Sabbath started at 6 p.m., leaving very little time to complete his burial. According to John chapter 19, verse 31, this next day was a special Sabbath. We're told, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. Now these women weren't the daughters of Jerusalem, the fair weather mourners that we met earlier on the streets of the city. No, these were his devoted followers from Galilee who had been with Jesus through most of his ministry. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Notice they observed this tomb. They didn't get caught up in the hysteria of the moment and forget where Jesus was buried. Some skeptics explain away the resurrection as nothing more than a case of mistaken tomb. That doesn't fit the facts. These women were very careful to note exactly where Jesus was buried. They would return on Sunday to finish the burial. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Within a hundred years of Jesus, at least 15 Jews claimed to be the Messiah. Of course, each one flamed, then fizzled, and then eventually was snuffed out. The women and Joseph went home thinking that another flame had just been extinguished. They had no idea that in a few hours, the whole course of human history would be forever altered. As the poet John Donay wrote, Death, be not proud. At the moment death seemed most victorious, a new fire is about to arise from the cold ashes. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. Well, let me close with a question that needs to be asked. Who was it that killed Jesus? Was it Pilate? Was it Herod? Was it the Roman soldiers? Was it the Jews? Well, they were all accomplices. But when we search for the smoking gun in this murder case, we have to look deeper. It was actually my sin and your sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. I killed him. You killed him. We can't pass the buck. We're all guilty of killing the Son of God. Jesus died because of our sin, and He did it willingly. Our responsibility is to make sure that He didn't die in vain. We do that by humbling ourselves and opening our hearts 
and surrendering our lives to Jesus. Let him forgive you and set you free. And then go and tell a friend.